0: Uh, Please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13 for our study this morning. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to finish the book of Hebrews this morning and then next week we're going to start a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you want to start reading ahead for 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible and we're currently just started 1 Corinthians, so it'd be a great time to join us on Wednesday nights as well. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word this morning, we desire to learn more about you, Jesus. We desire for our souls to be fed. There's so many discouraging things in our world and in our lives. We know that you, Jesus, are our refuge and we come to you as our refuge. God, would you give us ears to hear? We come with expectation. And Lord, feet that would apply your word. We do thank you for all of the moms in our congregation. Would you bless them, encourage them? Fill them afresh with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In conclusion, the ending is very important. If you go to a movie, I think that the ending is probably the most important part of a movie. Have you ever invested a small amount of your savings to go to the movies, like to actually not rent a movie, but go to the big screen and you whip out all that money to go and then all of a sudden you come to the end of the movie and they just leave you hanging? I think that's the worst. I didn't pay all this money for me to imagine how the movie's gonna end. I wanted you to conclude the movie for me. Are you reading a book and you're reading a book? And it's a small miracle for me to f- finish a book. I tend to get started on a book and then, all right, I'll just go ahead and start another book and I've got four or five books going. You finally get to the end of a book and it doesn't really wrap up. It really doesn't give you a, a c- conclusion. You just wanna take that book and it's a fuel for fire, isn't it? Just just get it out, you're, there's no conclusion. How about if you're running a race? What's the most important part of a race? It's the conclusion, it, it's the end. With a song, for those of you that are musicians, if a worship team or a band, they just botch it at the end of the song, and every instrument's ending at a, a different point, it's very noticeable, isn't it? So as we're in the book of Hebrews, we have the conclusion. This is the last chapter of this epistle. It's being written and the way that it's summed up is really giving nuggets of truths. This is very clear that the author is, is giving these final thoughts and saying, don't forget this. Don't forget this, much as a dad would talk to a son or a daughter as they're moving out of the house. You know, make sure to do this, make sure to do that. So we're gonna move pretty quickly through several topics this morning as we conclude this wonderful letter. So let's begin in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. That's the first encouragement that we're given, is there is brotherly love, now let it continue. Let it multiply and let it grow. Brotherly love provides the fertile soil for God's word to be planted. When you know that you're loved, when you know that you're cared for, it creates that environment to where you can receive God's word. So this is important, the way that we greet each other, the way that we say hello, the way that we care for one another, going out of our way, the way that a family sticks together, the body of Christ sticks together. Let brotherly love continue. In verse two, don't forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, Some have unwittingly entertained angels. He's covering different types of people. One is our relationship inside of the body of Christ. The next is, how do you treat a stranger? How do you treat somebody that you don't know? They're completely new to you, and the scripture tells us to entertain them, to be hospitable to them because they may be an angel unaware. That gets your mind going a little bit, doesn't it? It lets us know that there are angels that look just like us and we don't even understand that we're interacting with an angel. I wonder if we get to heaven and at some point we're talking with an angel Is that one time that you were in Starbucks and the person in front of you only had three dollars but it was five bucks because every time you go to Starbucks, it's five bucks, right? (laughs) And you whipped out a couple of dollars to, to help pay for that didn't realize it but you were entertaining an angel. Uh, At that, that time that you stopped and helped someone change their tire you were entertaining an angel. And it really does get our minds going a little bit of how many times are angels in our midst where we don't even realize it. The book of Hebrews does cover the topic of angels. If you remember earlier in our study that angels are less than Christ, that Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels' job is that they're ministering spirits to believers, to saints. They they aid the life of of believers and they encourage us. So that gives us an insight on how to treat strangers. In verse three, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. The church at this time was going through a tremendous amount of, Of persecution and martyrdom. The encouragement is don't forget about your brother or sister in Christ that's in chains because they're a follower of Jesus. It's our tendency out of sight and and out of mind, and we need to be reminded to care for brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison. What we're finding today at the world at large is persecution is on the rise. There's some articles that are out that persecution is up in China, that it, it's the most that it's been in the last decade, that it's a resurgence of persecution that's taking place in China. In the Middle East, the persecution of believers is is out of control. If you do just a simple news search on persecution of believers, you're going to find some very interesting things that have happened just even this last month. In April, the UN met and there was a group that presented to the UN, you need to be considering the persecution of Christians. These are things that were presented to the UN. This is the kind of stuff that we would expect from Christian articles and Christian sources, but this was going to the UN. We are literally watching the genocide of Jesus' followers in the Middle East. Also, at a time when persecution of Christians has reached historical proportions, the greatest crisis of the modern age. I'm not making this stuff up. Someone's standing in the UN and saying, this is the greatest crisis of the modern age is the genocide of believers and trying to get the UN to pay attention. Just in the first eight months of 2014, ISIS in Syria and Northern Iraq killed 24,000 believers I don't think we've got good numbers on how many believers are being executed in Syria, in, in Iraq. That's just in the first eight months of 2014 and it has continued. During the US occupation of Iraq, 20% of the population were Christians in, in Iraq. Now in Iraq, they estimate 4% because if you're a believer in Iraq, you've had to flee for your life as a refuge. Our news and our government doesn't accurately portray these things. You probably saw in Kenya, just here recently, where terrorists came in and killed 147 college students, but did you know that they targeted Christians? Those students were there for a prayer meeting. They knew that they were going to be there early for a prayer meeting, and they went and they killed Christians. They killed believers. The accounts were that they went and asked, "Are you Muslim? Or are you Christian?" And the Christians, they set aside and they killed the Christians. It was a clear attack specifically upon Christians. Just in the last few weeks in Libya, 21 believers were beheaded by ISIS. And these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And though we don't know them and we haven't met them, we're linked in Christ. And the scripture tells us for us to remember them to pray for them. Maybe God would stir you to get involved in some way. There's a lot of ministries that are reaching out to to these believers. But at the very least, don't forget, scripture says, remember them and pray for them. And it says specifically, as if you were chained. So how would I feel if I was chained in this prison for Christ, if I was being mistreated for Christ? At the very least, that they would be remembered and they would be prayed for and they would be encouraged. Verse four, so we've seen several relationships so far. First, our brothers and sisters in Christ, strangers, those that are being persecuted for Christ, and now marriage. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We just finished Why Marriage? We took a a two-week study on the topic of marriage. So I'm not gonna cover this in as much detail as I would normally. If you miss those teachings, you can go to the website and, and cover that. But I do wanna mention a few things. We need to always define marriage in our culture because it's not how culture defines marriage but what's God's definition of marriage. God tells us from Genesis one and two that marriage is between a man and a woman. A man and a woman committed to each other, that's God's definition of marriage. So here he tells us inside of marriage that the bed is honorable, that it's pure, that it's holy that it's undefiled. God created sexuality, he created intimacy to be expressed inside of marriage. Inside of marriage, it's life-giving. But then also that we find on the second half of this, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Sexual sin, sex being used outside of marriage, then God will bring judgment upon that. It's not that God is angry. It's not that God is is saying, I'm gonna judge you and I'm ready to pour out fire and brimstone upon you. It's that God has set up his world in a specific way where certain things bring about certain results. So if I lie and I'm a continual liar, it brings destruction to relationships. If, If I steal, that brings consequences and also sexuality and how you use it. And if it's inside of the commitment of marriage, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but outside... Of marriage, it brings destruction because sex is not just the joining of two bodies, but it's the joining of two souls. to become one flesh. You'll be blessed as you walk inside of marriage. Isn't this kind of an interesting little exhortation that's given by the pastor, the writer of Hebrews? He's just saying, I, I wanna give you guys a little bit of a reminder here. Hey, marriage is good. Sexuality inside of marriage, it's good. Satan, what does he do? before you're married. He tries to get you in bed with someone who's not, you're not your spouse, you're not committed to. But then as soon as you're married, he'll try to keep you out of bed with your spouse. So what's being prescribed to us here in scripture is a healthy intimacy inside of marriage and to avoid sexual sin. I wanna just take this a step further and kind of develop a concept this morning that's called hedges. And it comes from you know, ancient homes and ancient homesteads, maybe in the time frame of, of England, is if you had a home, you would build a hedge around your home, it would be a fence. For us today, it would be a wall, it's protection. And I would encourage you, if you're married or you're getting married, you're planning to get married, you desire to be married someday, is this concept of building a wall of protection around your marriage called a hedge. And there's two aspects. And the first is, you wanna have a good offense, Because offense is a good defense. I'm an old basketball guy. I played a lot of basketball growing up. Now I play some basketball in the driveway with the kids. But if you're really into basketball, you'll notice that a lot of the teams that dominate have a good offense. Because if you control the ball and you score the ball a lot, that automatically gives you an advantage on defense. And marriages that are healthy, they have a good offense, That's the first and foremost, is the way that you connect with each other. Praying together, reading God's word together, being friends. This is radical. I know you've probably never heard this before, but husbands and wives, be nice to each other. That is insane, you know? Be nice. Because by being kind and being nice to each other, you're building a protection around your marriage. Think about it this way, men. If you're mean to your wife all the time, if you're condescending to her, if you're a jerk to her, guess what? You're setting her up for an extreme amount of temptation when a guy comes her way who does treat her in a respectful way. And there will be men lined up to do that. There'll be some guy at work, some guy at the gym, even some guy at church, you know, that's not walking with the Lord, that's gonna come up to your wife and start to treat her in a respectful way and all of a sudden she's going, wow, that sure... Feels good because I never get this at home. And wives, the same is true for your husbands. There's some lady that's in line to compliment your husband. You know, if if we're always the one that's tearing down our spouse, we're setting them up. So you you wanna have a good offense. You wanna have a healthy intimacy with one another. You're protecting your marriage, but you also wanna have a good defense. And to think about what are some tempting, tempting ways that's gonna lead me into fornication and adultery because it's out there. The woman of folly, the man of folly, is out there to try to attack your marriage and begin to say, okay, here's some healthy things that I'm going to put in place. I can't give all of these to you this morning. I encourage you to think this through. Here's just a few, is be very careful with whom you share your heart if they're the opposite sex and it's not your spouse. Because heart leads up the ladder of intimacy. So if you're always sharing your heart, men with some lady at work who's not your spouse, you're moving up the ladder of intimacy and it's ultimately gonna result in compromise. You gotta save your heart to share that with your wife. Get in a men's accountability group and and that's the place that you share the difficulties that that you're going through. You need to be careful. Women, you need to be careful. If there's some guy that's you know, wanting to open up and share all of his problems with you because conversation is moving up that ladder of intimacy. With the world that we live in, I think it's very important when it comes to Facebook, to Twitter, to the internet, that you don't have a private life. Don't have a private life. Set it up to where your spouse has open access to what you're doing online. If you've got to hide what you're doing online, that's not an appropriate hedge in your marriage. If you've got a Facebook account, make sure that your spouse is looking at who's sending you instant messages. I don't want this private world of instant messages. It's opened up all of this temptation that we can't live in that place of of privacy. So think through it, pray through it. What are the hedges that you've put in place in your marriage? Verse 5. I love verse five. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Conduct has also been translated lifestyle. Let your lifestyle be without covetousness. What's covetousness? It's longing for something that God hasn't provided. Maybe he's provided it for a neighbor. Maybe he's provided it for a friend, a coworker, A stranger, but he hasn't provided it for us and we long for it. It could be simple things like your neighbor's grass. Now this week, everybody's grass is green. But come August, not everybody's grass is green. I don't know. There's some guys on my street where they're awesome at it. And it's easy to drive home in my car and go, what is he doing? I wish that I could have my grass look like his grass. I remember my neighbor, Jim, who lived across the street, and he's now moved away. He, he was retired, and literally, his grass was to die for. There, there was, it was perfect. It was a golf course quality. And I remember asking him one day, like, you know, how do you get all the dandelions and, and weeds out of your grass? And I was thinking that you know, he would have this amazing solution, this chemical you put on your grass, and he just looked at me. He was this little guy, and he says, I pick them. You know? <laughs> oh, man, that's... That's a new thought. I could actually get down there and I could rip them out of, out of my grass. It can be the smallest thing is someone's grass, someone's car, someone's house, someone's spouse. And you start to covet something and, and long for something. And isn't this the driving force of our culture? Isn't this the message of our, of our culture? If you could just get a little bit more education, you'd be set. If you could just make a little bit more money, oh, then you would, you'd be satisfied. If you could get a house or get a bigger house or if you could look like this, you know? For the men, it's like, man, if I could just be a little bit stronger and a little bit buffer and you ladies have all this pressure to to look a specific way. Let's be honest. None of us live up to the standard, right? But we're constantly be given this message of just a little bit more. And God says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Actually, covetousness is a sin, It's in the Ten Commandments, to not covet. And here's the answer or the solution or the source to contentment, but be content with the things that you have right now. Whatever you have, be content with that. Don't long for for more. Don't fall into that trap of saying, I just need a little bit more. Why? Because Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When I'm not content, I'm slapping Jesus in the face. I'm saying to Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough. I'm looking outside of my relationship with him to provide satisfaction. He's with you, church. He's with you personally. This is personal. It says he's with you everywhere you go. He is with you. And the still small voice of the spirit is probably saying, am I not enough in those moments of covetousness? So, the degree that I'm content is the degree that I'm enjoying fellowship with Jesus Christ. Contentment is found in the person and the presence of Jesus. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? Right? Paul wrote in Philippians 4, he said, I've learned to be content. It doesn't come naturally. I've ne- never met someone where they just were born content, we're born selfish, we're born in this place of covetousness. So, we have to learn contentment. And he said, whether I abound or I abase. Sometimes when we abound, it's not enough. When we're abased, we want more. Paul says, whether I'm abounding or I'm in a place where I'm abased, I have learned contentment. The next verse is one you probably know. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that verse is in this discussion of contentment. He's saying it's Christ, it's his strength. Christ is gonna meet me in such a way to provide contentment have you been saying things like this, man, it's my boss. If I just had a different boss, I'd be okay in life. It's the economy. If the economy would just get better, I would, I'd be all right. I'd be, I'd be satisfied. Man, if I were married, then I would be set and I would be content. you got a whole nother group of you that are married and you're saying, if I was just single, I'd be content and I'd be, satisfied. It's my kids. You know, they're, they're so difficult and they're so hard. If, if I just had my kids grow up, I, I'd be satisfied and content. And we're starting to think those things and say those things. It's an indicator that we need to look to Jesus to bring about that contentment. I think that there's some life verses in this chapter. There's some, chap- some verses to memorize, to meditate upon and to say, God, I want to walk in contentment instead of covetousness. And verse six, so we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. We're making it personal. This is quoting Psalms 118. Not just that the Lord is a helper, but the Lord is my helper. I want you to picture this morning that Jesus is with you. He's standing next to you. He's living inside of you. And for you to lay hold of that truth and to boldly say the Lord is my helper. I'm struggling with being content. Jesus you're my helper. This is the challenge that I'm having in life. Jesus you're my helper. How many days and times do I not access this wonderful help that's provided in the presence of Jesus Christ? Part of the fact that Christ is with us is we don't have to live in fear. He's the creator of the universe. He's the lover of our souls. He's our good shepherd and because he's with us we don't have to live in fear. Every step of our lives can be defined by contentment and confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the Lord. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of what's right around the corner. I'm trusting in the Lord because God is with me. What's the worst thing that someone could do to you? Take your life. If you're in Christ and someone takes your life, where do you go? You go home to be with the Lord. So you don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in covetousness. Verse seven, we move on to the next topic. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. He's saying, remember your spiritual leaders, remember your pastors, your teachers, your mentors, and how they've invested in your life and spoken the word of God to you. If you've been in Christ for some years, think about all those that have shared God's word with you. Can you remember a time and a place? Can you remember a specific message? Can you remember studying the book of Ephesians? Can you remember some personal investment that was made? And that's the exhortation that's given to us is remember them, but also to consider them. Look at their lives. No pastor, no teacher, no mentor is perfect. But you should be able to see the fruit of their life. What direction are they headed? Is there a consistency in loving Jesus? Is there a transparency that's there? You can see the fruit of Christ in their life. Specifically, when it comes to leaders, Jesus told us you'll know them by their fruits. You're able to be a fruit inspector, not for judgment, not to place judgment, but to understand, yeah, they're connected to the vine. They're connected to Christ. I can consider the outcome of their conduct. In verse eight, I I love the context of verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So though we're thankful for leaders that God has placed in our lives, we put our focus, our adoration, and our, our attention on the ultimate leader, which is Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No leader, no human leader is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but Christ, he's consistent. You've heard me say this from time to time and I hope it's planted deep in your heart. Never follow a person. Never follow a particular church. Never follow a group of individuals. Follow Christ. Be a disciple of Christ. Because men and women, they'll let you down. But Christ, he'll never let you down. And we put our attention and our focus upon him. He's the source of everything that we talk about in Hebrews 13. Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. There sure is a lot of strange and various doctrines out there. You gotta be careful, don't you? Doctrine is what we believe about God and how God is telling us to live our lives. How do you know if something is sound doctrine that you should base your life on? Is it in the life of Jesus? Is it in the book of Acts? And is it in the epistles? That's a good test. If someone's teaching something, Should I follow this? Well, is it in the life of Jesus? Is it in the early church in the book of Acts? And is it in the epistles in the New Testament? But that's your responsibility. You'll have to sort through those things to decide and discern, is this sound doctrine? It's a warning, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. I hope as we've studied Hebrews over the last six months or so, that your heart has been established in the grace of God. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than. He's greater than the old covenant. We don't have to approach God through the law in a kosher diet. That we're in right standing with God because of his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. We're not trusting in some system of works that, that we have created. There's a lot of strange doctrines, but the doctrine we need to be established in is grace. In verse 10, we have an altar for which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have something that's better than the tabernacle. Our altar is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's Calvary. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin and are burned outside the camp. We're going to the Old Testament where there's three examples of the sacrifice being offered, being killed outside of the camp. It's Exodus 29, Leviticus 14, Leviticus 16. And God in his wisdom as he's writing scripture, he points this to Jesus Christ in verse 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his blood, suffered outside the gate. If you study the gospels and you see the trial of Christ, And then ultimately the crucifixion of Christ, the trial of Christ is happening in Jerusalem. It's happening around the the Temple Mount but that's not where Christ was crucified. He was taken outside the ancient city, outside the walls, outside the camp and he was killed at Golgotha. Calvary, the place of the skull. Calvary literally means the place of the skull. As our church is Rocky Mountain Calvary, it could literally be translated that we're the skull church. That's what Calvary means. Because where Christ was killed, the hill looks like a skull. You can go to Israel today and you can see the place Golgotha where we believe that Christ was crucified, but it was outside the city. It was outside the camp that Christ suffered that reproach, that shame for us so that we could be sanctified, and here's the application for us, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For a Jew who has been saved, they're going to have to leave Judaism from the sense of trusting in the law, trusting in the sacrifices that take place at the temple. And this is what was difficult for the Hebrew church. And the encouragement is Christ went outside the camp, Christ suffered the rejection. You enter into his reproach. And for us, there may be a camp of people that if we follow Christ totally and completely, they will reject us. And it's keeping us. We're hesitant to follow Christ the way we desire and the way that we should because this camp is going to reject us. It might be family, it could be friends, it could be a combination of both, co-workers. And God's speaking to us saying, don't try to be on the in crowd with the camp. Don't worry about that group. You identify with the reproach of Christ and following Christ. In verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Throughout Hebrews, we've been encouraged to look to the city that has foundations. Abraham looked for the city that God had built. He was a sojourner. He was a, a pilgrim. And we're reminded of this once again. We have no continuing city. From God's perspective, here on earth, there is no continuing city. What's New York? What's Los Angeles? What's London? What's Johannesburg? What's Sydney, Australia? What are these cities in all of eternity? They're not gonna last. They're not continuing. They're not eternal. But yet heaven is eternal. So we seek that city. We put our hope and our expectation upon heaven and the throne room of God. Verse 15 is another life verse. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. By him, by Christ, Christ is the source. Just as Christ is the source for contentment, he's also the source for praise and thanksgiving. And the scripture tells us that we should continually offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, which is giving thanks to his name. God would desire for us to live in a continual state of thankfulness of his goodness. It's not by our circumstances. It's not by if the Lord works this out, if the Lord works that out, it's by him. We're going to him. We're saying, God, because of who you are, Jesus, because of who you are, I choose to be thankful. I'm gonna continually do it. Wake up in the morning, thankful to you. Walking through my day, thankful to you. Put my head on the pillow, thankful to you. Why is it called a sacrifice of praise? Because we don't always feel like it. Let's be honest. How do you generally wake up in the morning? Do you wake up bright and cheery and, just thankful. Your hands are raised in the bed. Lord, you're so good. I just thank you for a new day. I tend to wake up grumpy. Anybody else? Anybody else wake up grumpy? All three of us? (laughs) Maybe we could talk afterwards and encourage each other. It tends to be the way that I wake up, apart from a willful decision. It's easy to just wake up discouraged. It's easy to wake up You know, thinking about all the things that you've got to do, and this feeling of 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 being overwhelmed, and so that's why in the morning, the first thing out of our lips, if it's going to be praise, it might be a sacrifice of praise. Maybe something like this: God, thank you that your mercies are new this morning, and great is your faithfulness. God, without your mercies, I'd be consumed. These challenges that I'm already thinking about, I know that you're going to be faithful. God, you're so good. Do you always feel like singing to the Lord when we gather on Sunday morning, Saturday night, Wednesday night? Or do you come in some Sunday mornings and you just don't feel like it? And in fact, there's a little bit of a wrestling match that's happening with you and the Holy Spirit. You're saying, "I'm not going to sing to God." Did you know singing to God's actually a command? Do you know that your tongue and your lips were created for the purpose to sing of the goodness of God? It's not just for the people that like singing. It's not just for the people that have a good voice. You may love to sing and have a beautiful voice and it's easy for you to, to sing unto the Lord, but God says make a joyful noise to the Lord. That means if you cannot hit a tune to save your life, God wants you to lift your voice to the Lord. We are all the worship team here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. It's not just the worship team's job to come and to sing praise to the Lord. They're not singing to us. They're not performing. It's, it's not a performance, And as we come in and with that heart of expectation of God, I'm going to sing to you. Now, some weeks you just love the songs. You're like, man, they picked my favorite songs I can really worship. And then other weeks, they're like, who picked these songs? You know, I don't like these songs. With a church our size, even a church of five, we could not pick songs that everybody likes. Do you understand that? So whether I like the song or I don't like the song, I've got a choice to make is I can offer the sacrifice of praise. That's why it's entitled a sacrifice. I've gone through long seasons of my life where I have not felt the warm fuzzies when it comes to my relationship with the Lord. It feels like the Lord's distance. I know he's not distant, but for whatever reason, God's not allowing me to feel all of that comfort and all the feelings that we long for. But then there's other seasons where all of the feelings are there. It comes very easy and it comes naturally. We have to grow and mature to say, by him, no matter what season, in season and out of season, I'm going to continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Whether I feel like it or not, God isn't any less good. Amen? (laughs) My feelings don't change the goodness of God. And this is also what I've experienced is a lot of times my emotions do change as I choose to praise, as I choose to be thankful, as I choose to offer up that sacrifice of praise, that fruit of my lips. It's an important truth for us to embrace this morning. In verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased so there's praise that's an offering to the Lord, but there's also actions of worship and praise by doing good, by meeting a need. Someone that you know is in need of groceries, in need of some extra help, and you take time to share with them. You share resources, and share concern and choosing to do good. It's the actions of worship as well as the words of worship. In verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So there's an encouragement here to pastors and to elders. Is their job is to rule and to serve the flock of God with joy. If we're doing it in a way where we're not joyful and we're just filled with four long faces and sorrow and grief and like, oh, Who made me a pastor? This is so hard. You know, oh, it's Sunday morning. Open your Bibles. Aren't you excited to be here? You know, and then the scripture just says that wouldn't be good for you. You know, so we're asked by God to do it with joy. And then also every pastor, every elder is gonna have to give an account to God for the way that they lead God's people. That's sobering. The pastoral team here and the elder team, we're gonna stand before God and have to give an account for the way that we served. And then for the body of Christ, there's this truth that we need to acknowledge that God has put spiritual authority in our life for our benefit. And the way that I view this is it's not this heavy handed. Pastors are not supposed to be heavy handed authoritarians and dictators. Jesus was a servant and he came to serve. It's written to us by Paul that he didn't desire to have dominion over people's faith, but to be helpers of their joy. And that's what pastors should do. We shouldn't have dominion over people. We should be helpers of people's joy by teaching them God's word, but also holding accountable to God's word. This is what we all need, everyone, pastors and elders and everyone in the church, is we need to be committed to a community of believers so that if we walk into sin, we'll be loved enough to be held accountable. So if this is your home church and you come here and you decide, you know, I just want to walk off into this crazy area of sin, we're going to try to humbly and biblically come to you and say, look, brother, sister in Christ, we love you. This is what God's word says. This isn't our idea. This is God's word. Would you consider lining your life up with, with God's word. And we all need that. What, what happens to our lives if we don't have any accountability? We get to a place where it's much easier to walk into sin. And so that's what verse 17 is teaching us. In verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. There's some circumstance in the author of the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author is dogmatically. He's facing some challenges that are preventing him from coming to the Hebrew church. He says, would you pray for me in these things? We go on into verse 20. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant We're brought back to the themes of the book of Hebrews. God is the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus died and rose again to be our leader, to gain our loyalty. Do we understand that? To be our Lord. We go, Wow, you died for me? You love me? You rose again for my sins? Here's my life and here's my loyalty. And his blood brought us into the everlasting covenant, the grace of God that we can access the throne of God, that we can be the sons and daughters of God. This is God's commitment to you to make you complete in every good work, to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. God is gonna continue to complete us. He's gonna continue to work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation for I've written it to you in a few words. That's very simply, in conclusion, the author of Hebrews is saying, guys, don't write off my exhortations. Don't write off my warnings. Don't write off my encouragements because I gave it to you in a few words. Now that's a pastor after my own heart, 13 chapters and he says, hey guys, I was holding back. That was just a few words there. In verse 23, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So, Peter must have been facing, or excuse me, Timothy must have been facing an imprisonment and he was set free. Greet all those who rule over you and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you, grace be with you all, amen. He leaves them in the hands of God's grace. It's been a real privilege and joy to study through the book of Hebrews together. I've loved the theme that Jesus is greater than. There's a whole book of the Bible that's written to us to make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And we understand that he's our salvation, he's our sufficiency, he is all all things. Do you remember when we started this book? We really tackled this idea, well, oh yeah, Jesus, that's great, but I need this over here. You know, someone tells me, you need to draw near to Jesus. What you're really looking for is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And we go, oh, I know that, but I really need this over here. Jesus is it. He's everything. He's our salvation. He's what we long for. And we had a wonderful display of who Jesus is and how to respond to Jesus Christ. Whenever I'm done with teaching a book or reading a book on my own, I always like to go back and say, what are one or two things that God really wants me to take away from this study? Was there one or two truths from the book of Hebrews that really hit you? Maybe it was back from chapter four. Maybe it was chapter two. Maybe it was chapter 10. But go back and underline it. Write it down, spend some moments med- meditating upon it and walk away with that truth and say, now I'm gonna apply this truth to my heart and my life. And the next week, we'll begin the book of First Samuel. We're calling it Kings and Sons as it's a story of kings and their sons. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this chapter, these truths. We choose contentment this morning instead of covetousness, because you, Jesus, you're with us and you're more than enough. You're the one who satisfies our souls. We look to you. God, would you forgive us when we're looking to a car, a a promotion, a relationship, to bring about the contentment that only you can provide? Like Paul, would you help us to learn contentment? Right now, in Jesus' name, we just give you the sacrifice of praise. Right now, in your own heart, in your your lips, just lift to the Lord the things that you're thankful for. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me while I was yet a sinner. Thank you for all the blessings that you've poured out into my life. I don't deserve them. God, help us to choose thanksgiving over grumbling and complaining. God, you know the hearts. You know each person that's here. You know those that need to turn to you in salvation.